0: Feels like I need like an epic thing to say right now. I don't have it. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Uh, man, we're, we're beginning a new series called The Greatest Hits. Uh, that probably turns your mind to the movies, which we're gonna get to in a second. Uh, but greatest hits first, uh, you think about songs. In your opinion, what would you say are the greatest hits of all time? I think the, um, the way you come up with that is probably different for everyone, um, I don't know how you would define it, but uh, maybe the most money a song ever made, and um, man, I, you probably don't have it guessed. Somebody in the first service told me they, had it, they know what the song is. Um, I, I don't think they were telling me the truth. The song is White Christmas by Bing Crosby. If I, said, if I said, what's the greatest hit of all time, I don't think anybody in the room would have said that, uh, There are just some songs that are so popular that it feels like everybody knows what it is. That's what makes it a greatest hit. And so our series for the next several weeks uh, is going to really be about some of the most famous stories in the Bible, stories that are so famous that if you walked into a kid's room and on their bookshelf they had a storybook Bible, you would pull it off. Any kid in the world is going to have in their storybook Bible, they're going to have these stories in it. Uh, that, that's what we're looking at, familiar stories. But these stories are so much more than familiar. They're also significant. They're significant in the way that we understand the story of the Bible. We understand who God is. They're also significant because they have very real meaning for our lives. And so we're going to look at these stories together. And today, we're going to begin at the beginning. And so you can o- open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we're going to be. One of the things that I love to do the most is to go to the movies. I like to go to the movies. Like Christmas Day, my family, we went to go see that, the new Wonka movie. It was great, I slept through half of it. We had the best time. (laughs) Uh, It's not about the movie, it's about going to the movies. I like the movie experience. I like to go in and uh, get my tickets and pay $25 for popcorn and get a giant soda, and get my tickets, and uh, walk to the ticket, the person who's supposed to take the the ticket from me, but they're never there, so you just walk in. Uh, And then you go to your movie, and you find your seat, and then you get all situated, and then realize you have to go to the bathroom, so you get up and you go back down, go to the bathroom, get back to your seat, and then you're there just in time for the pre-previews. That's how early I like to get there. I wanna be there for the pre-previews, and just enjoy this experience at the movies. But there's one thing that I dislike, one thing that I do not understand, is the person who shows up late to the movies, like 10 minutes after it's already started. I don't understand why you would spend that amount of money to be late. I mean, you're missing about 50 bucks worth of movie right there, you know? <laughs> you, you gotta be on time. I'll never understand that. But why is it important to be there when the movie starts? See, if you showed up in the middle of a movie, maybe you've done that before, you've kind of turned on the TV and it's the middle of a movie, you could probably figure out who the main characters are. And after a while, you can probably figure out what the main conflict is. But you're, you're gonna miss something. You're gonna miss the fullness of what's taking place if you don't start from the beginning. If you wanna understand a story as it's meant to be understood, you've got to start at the beginning. That's true in movies. That's true in books. If, if you went to a bookshelf and you, you took a, a novel off the shelf and you turned to chapter 27 to start, you might be able to figure out what's going on in that chapter, but you're not really going to understand the whole story because you've missed the beginning. Well, the Bible is a book. The Bible is a book telling one story, and yeah, it's got a lot of little stories in it, but those little stories contribute to the one big story that the biblical authors are telling us. And if you start in the middle, you can kind of figure out what's going on, but if you start at the beginning, then you can kind of figure out what the story is. Now, the beginning of the Bible is the book of Genesis. The word Genesis actually means beginning. It's like an origin story. While we're thinking about movies, it seems to me that Hollywood has run out of ideas. There are no new stories. That's why when there is a new story, it's so refreshing, is because we're looking for something new. Now, uh, these these production companies, Disney, Netflix, all these places, Marvel, they, they figured out, they figured out how to manufacture news stories, and the way they do that is what, what we call origin stories. Like, you know Star Wars, but where did Chewbacca come from? So they'll come up with a new story based on this story that you already know. That's what we call origin stories. That's what the movie Wonka is, in case you were wondering. You know Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Wonka, where did Charlie, or where where did uh, Willy Wonka come from, you know? It's an origin story, and that's what we have in the book of Genesis. We have the origin story of the universe and of humanity, And so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna focus most of our time on the contents of Genesis chapter one, verse one. Moses is the author of Genesis, and listen to what he writes in Genesis chapter one, verse one, he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The opening of the biblical storyline Moses sets the record straight. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This very first sentence of the Bible answers some questions for us. It it answers the who, the what, the when, the how of the universe. And we're going to look at those questions not in that neat order, but we're going to work through these questions in the order that the text answers them. So at the very beginning, the very first question that gets answered in Genesis chapter one is when did God create the heavens and the earth? The text tells us in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means that God created before there was anything else, that there is nothing that is co-eternal with God. In the beginning, he created. The second question that's answered, who created the heavens and the earth? In the beginning. Who did? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God. Make a note that the very first subject in the Bible is God. Now, if you're a literary person, to have a sentence, you have to have a subject and a predicate. The subject is the one doing the action, okay? So the very first subject in the Bible is God. God is the second most frequent noun in the Old Testament in the Hebrew language. It it occurs almost 3,000 times. That's evidence that the Bible isn't primarily about humans. Yes, it does involve us, but it's not primarily about us. It is primarily about God. And God is powerful. Uh, The Hebrew word for for God, you, you probably know it or have heard it before, Elohim. You've probably heard that word before. That word is a plural word. The singular of that word means strength. So the idea of God, Elohim, is strength upon strength upon strength, plural strengths. In the beginning, this mighty, powerful one created the heavens and the earth. God alone has created all things. He alone deserves worship and allegiance. God has done it. The next question that gets answered, what did God do in the beginning? In the beginning, God, but what did he do? In the beginning, God created. God created. In the Hebrew language, the word create is different from making. Creating is different from making. And every time in the, in the Old Testament that the word for creating is used every time, God is the one who does it. God alone creates. Man makes, man builds. God also makes, God also builds. But God alone creates from nothing. There's a story, it's not a true one, it's not in the Bible, but there's a story that there were some scientists who approached God one day and said, we don't need you anymore, God, we have created life. We know how to make a human being. And so God tells the scientists, well, that's interesting. Why don't we have a human-making contest? You go first. And so the scientist, you know, cracks his knuckles and he gets down on one knee and starts to gather some dirt together and God interrupts, he says, no, 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 no. You go get your own dirt. God alone creates. Man may may make, man may build, but God alone creates. What did God create in the beginning? The text tells us the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. That means everything that exists. If you think of an ancient person in their mind, when they look up, what do they see? They see the heavens, that means the skies. They see the heavens, and what do they see when they look down? They see the earth. That's everything, everything in between, the heavens and the earth. God created everything. There is nothing that exists of which we can say, God didn't create that thing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth the next question that's answered is, how did God create everything? That's not really answered in verse 1, but that's the rest of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 answers the question, how did God create everything? And the answer, God formed and filled the universe by his powerful word. God formed and filled the universe by his powerful word word. And we're going to look at that briefly together. Before we do that, I want to point out to you uh, the pretext of God's creation. The the pretext of God's creation is an ominous one. Look with me in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters." There's an ominous tone. There are three statements that are made here. Two of them are negative, and one of them is positive. The first statement in verse two is that the earth was without form and void, formless and void. What does that mean? I think we can just say that it means not good. It's it's not good. Every time these two words appear together, formless and void, that every other time they appear, they show up when it's talking about the judgment of God, God's fury and his judgment over sin. That's when these words show up, the idea of judgment. It's not good. The second statement that's made says that darkness was over the face of the deep. Darkness, also not good in the Bible. As you read through the Bible, if there's darkness, there, something is wrong. Something is not good. I think about the darkness in the, uh, the Egyptian plagues when there was uh, darkness over the land. Not good, formless, void, darkness over the deep, that, that's referring to the ocean. And in the ancient Near Eastern mind, the ocean is a bad place. The ocean is a place of chaos. So two negative statements that are made, but then there's one positive statement. It says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The first two statements tell us that things are chaotic, Things are not as they should be. Something is wrong. And yet, the third statement is positive. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. is, is like uh, The idea is like a, a bird or an eagle might, might flutter over its nest, that fluttering. The, the Spirit of God is hovering, fluttering over the waters. Though the world may be chaotic and senseless, the Spirit of God is up to something. I don't know if if there's somebody in the room that needs to hear that this morning that maybe you look at Genesis 1, 2 and you say, man, that kind of describes my life. Formless, void, dark, empty, chaotic, senseless. You need to know that though you may perceive things are out of order, the Spirit of God May still be up to something. I don't know if you find hope there or not, but this is the pretext for the creation account. Things are not complete, things are not as they should be, but God is up to something. It's as if God has this lump of clay in his hands and it's just kind of nothing, it's got no shape, it's got no purpose. It's not good, it's not complete, and God is going to remedy this problem, and the way he's going to do it is with his powerful, creative word. He's gonna take this chaos, this kind of nothing, and he's going to form it, and he's going to fill it. Now, after Genesis chapter one, verse two, verses three and onward, what you're going to get is a description of how God created the heavens and the earth. This is how God created the heavens and the earth. That's, that's what you're going to get. And, and we don't have time this morning to walk through every verse of that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to challenge you to, today. I know the cowboys are on at 3.30. I know. Read Genesis chapter 1 on your own. Or maybe together as a family. Maybe even over dinner, over lunch. You guys can maybe even read it out loud as a family. Read Genesis chapter one. But as you do that, there's a few things that I, I wanna point out to you that you can take note of as you do that. The first thing that I want you to notice is how Moses shows us in Genesis chapter one that God creates by first forming and then filling what he has formed. And here's, here's what I mean by that. In the first three days of creation, God forms the universe. And then what you'll see in the second three days of creation, he starts to fill the things that he formed. So for example, day one corresponds to day four with regards to light. In day one, he separates darkness and light. And then in day four, he starts to make something out of that light. He creates the sun and the moon and the stars. Or uh, you could look at day two and how that corresponds to day five. And day two, he separates out the water and, and the sky, and it's not the same thing. Sky and water aren't the same thing. They're separated out. Well, then in day five, he fills that water with fish, and then he fills the sky with birds. And then in day three, he forms the land. He separates the water from the land, and then day six, he fills the land with animals, and then the crown jewel of his creation, humanity. God forms and fills the universe. That's the act of creation in Genesis chapter one. Here's the second thing I want you to notice. I want you to notice that Genesis chapter one actually tells us how God did it. It tells us how. Let me show you. I'll give you an example. Look with me at day one of creation, verses three through five. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, there was morning, the first day. We are told exactly how God created. God said, let there be light, and it was so. There was light. God created by his powerful word. There was no deliberation. There was no argument, no conversation that needed to be had. There was only obedience. God spoke, and it was so. And you'll notice that pattern throughout Genesis chapter one that when God speaks, no one argues. God creates by his powerful word. You'll you'll notice that pattern. Another pattern that you'll notice as you read through Genesis chapter one is that God continually uh, calls things good. The things that he's creating, he, he calls them good. This word good is interesting. I have a child of mine that I'll ask him uh, how was your day at school? And he will say, good. Now the thing is, I need more information because good could be this was the worst day of my life or it could be this was the best day of my life or anything in between. And so uh, my kids know now when they, I say, how was your day? And they say, good, I just wait because I'm waiting for at least one sentence after that. Give me something. I don't know what good means. And we kind of feel that way a little bit as we read Genesis when God calls it good. What does God mean when he says that something is good? The Hebrew word for good means happy, healthy, useful, fitting, beneficial, beautiful, righteous, achieving its purpose. God calls the light good, Because it's doing what it's supposed to do. The light is supposed to dispel the darkness and it's doing what it's supposed to. So God calls it good. It's valuable. It's useful. It's healthy. This is accomplishing its purpose. God calls it good. God alone is the arbiter over what is good and what is evil. God alone, not humanity. And everything that God creates is good. We see how God forms and fills the universe with his powerful word. He has taken what's formless and void and he makes it good. At the end of creation, he says, behold, it is very good. That's Genesis chapter one, and you're gonna read through it. And, and maybe you you've read through Genesis chapter one before, and there are all kinds of questions that you have about the mechanics of how these things work, and there are theories such as gap theory, or there are questions over are those days really the days in order? Or is this just a poetic way of putting it? Uh, because it doesn't really make sense to me. Questions are fine. Questions are, are, are totally good. As a matter of fact, Moses, when he wrote Genesis and he wrote his creation account, he was writing over and against some other theories about how the world was created. There, was, there were some crazy theories. You can go read them. They're absolutely wild. He was writing over and against them, and that's what he was explaining. Questions are fine, but listen to me. I wanna I want challenge you with this thought. Sometimes we try to approach the Bible as an answer book, as in, I have my questions and I'm gonna bring my questions to the Bible and the Bible is required to answer all of my questions and if it doesn't, then I'm disappointed or then it must not be true. I wanna challenge that thought if that's, that's a thought that you've had. The Bible is not an answer book in that way. Actually, the Bible is more like a question and answer book. The Bible asks the questions that matter and then answers those questions. The Bible asks the questions that we would ask if we knew what was most important and then answers those questions. Well, what are the questions being answered in Genesis chapter one? Who created the universe? God did. When did God create the universe? Well, he did it in the beginning, before there was anything. Well, what did he create? Everything. God created everything. And how did he do it? Oh, he did it with his powerful word. Those are the questions that are being answered. Those are the questions that matter. And why do those particular questions, why do they matter? Well, those questions tell us about who God is and what God has done. Those questions matter to us. You know what else matters to us is who are we then in light of who God is? And what is our responsibility to him? We see these answers in Genesis chapter one. So as we consider this account of creation, we can learn two things about God, more than two things about God, but two that I wanna point out to you. The first one, God alone possesses authority to rule over all things. God alone possesses the authority to rule over all things because God is the only one who creates. God said, let there be light. And there was light. He is the king calling out a command. And creation rushes to obey without deliberation Without struggle, God didn't have to put forth any effort to make this happen. He said, let there be light, and it was so. God possesses authority to rule. He names things. You saw in verses three through five, he named night and day. When you name something, you have authority over it. God names things, and that has real implications for you and for me. Sometimes we have this image of God that he is the man upstairs and he's disinterested. When in reality, he is the ruler over all creation and he demands our obedience. He has the authority to rule over all things. Here's the second thing I I, I think about God when I read these verses. God alone possesses authority to evaluate all things. Not only does he possess the authority to rule over all things, he also possesses authority to evaluate all things. God calls his creation good, useful, fitting, beautiful, God alone is the arbiter of what is good and not good. And that means that man is not. We don't get to decide what's good and evil. We've been told what's good and evil. And we exist under God's authority. But in our society, we like to be the ones who decide. We like to put ourselves at the highest authority in the place of God and decide for ourselves what is good and evil. And in so doing, we commit the same sin as Adam and Eve. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. God alone possesses authority to evaluate all things. Those are two things that we can learn about God as we look at this text. We can also learn about ourselves from it, though. If God God created the universe, that's got implications for us because we are part of that creation, and and there's all sorts of things we could pull out of this, but I, I think of two things that we ought to be and two things that we ought to do as we consider God's creation. Two things we ought to be and two things we ought to do. If in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Therefore, what? Therefore, be humble. If God created the heavens and the earth. Be humble. If God created the universe with this powerful word, then that means that you didn't. You didn't. The point of the text, one of the points of the text, is that you aren't God. You didn't create anything. You know, so many of the stressors in our lives are because we're trying to do things that aren't our job. We can't fix other people. We can't manipulate situations so that they turn out the way that we want them to. We can't bend the universe to operate at our will. We can't know the future. We can't change people's hearts. We can't. Speak healing into existence. But we try to, and we we worry ourselves sick because we're trying to be God. And you need to know all of that worry, all of that anxiety is rooted in pride. You aren't God, you didn't create the world. There's no situation where you can bring your own dirt. I've heard it said a couple of times that one of the differences between you and God is that God never pretends to be you. If God created the universe with this powerful word, then you didn't, and so you should be humble. You aren't him. Be humble. Here's the second thing I think you should be. I think you should be hopeful because if God created the heavens and the earth, with his powerful word, then what else can he accomplish with his powerful word? Oh, there's lots that he can do. I wanna point out a couple of examples to you. One thing that he can do is he can heal. God can heal with his powerful word. I wanna call your attention to Matthew chapter eight. Matthew chapter eight. I wanna show you what God can do with his powerful word. Beginning in verse five, Matthew says that when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And then later on down in verse 13, Jesus says to the centurion, go, go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed from that very moment. Maybe you need God's healing this morning. You need to know that if God can create the universe with his powerful word, like if he can speak the stars into existence, then he can also heal with the words of his mouth. What else can he do? He can work all things according to his good pleasure, He can work all things according to his good pleasure. Here's another example out of Matthew chapter eight. and verse 23, it says, when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? O you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? See, at the words of Jesus' mouth, the winds and the waves stopped. The winds and the waves. Like at the beginning of creation in Genesis 1 2, there was chaos and then there was a voice that spoke. Maybe the the wind and the waves in Matthew 8 ceased because they'd heard that voice before. The words of his mouth, God can work all things according to his good pleasure. If God can create the heavens and the earth with the words of his mouth, what can he do? He can heal, he can work all things according to his pleasure. He can also make dead things come to life. That's what he did in creation. There was a whole lot of chaos and he spoke and now life starts to come. He can make dead things come to life. Let me read you another example. John chapter 11. Jesus' friend Lazarus is sick and Mary and Martha come to tell Jesus, hey, you need to get here quick. Your buddy Lazarus is sick. And Jesus delays and he allows Lazarus to die. So that he could do this. Listen to what John 11, beginning in verse 38 says. Then Jesus deeply moved again. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. God, with his powerful word, can make dead things come to life. And that, that's true physically. That's also true spiritually. In 2 Corinthians chapter four, we get something similar. 2 Corinthians chapter Four, beginning there in verse three. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, "Even if our gospel is veiled, it is only veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, But Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul is is telling us. Here's what he's saying. If you believe the gospel, like you're sitting in this room right now and you believe the gospel, that I can trust in Jesus and I can have my sins forgiven. If you believe that, you you don't believe it because you're really smart, or you're really wise, or you're a really good person. That's not why you believe the gospel. You believe the gospel because God looked in your heart and said, let there be light. And and for those among us who, who do not believe the gospel, the reason that they don't believe the gospel is because God has not looked in their heart and said, let there be light yet. See, God can make dead things come to life with his powerful word. And that's true physically, that's true spiritually, that's true all the way around. At the words of his mouth, dead things come to life. That means that no situation is hopeless as long as God can speak. No situation is hopeless as long as God can speak, even if you perceive it as dead. So we should be hopeful. Those are two things we ought to be. We ought to be humble. We ought to be hopeful. Now, two things we ought to do. If if God created the universe with a word, it is our duty and our delight to worship. You know, the Psalms, it's 150 worship songs is what it is. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That is a song of worship based in creation. Psalm 100 says this, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We worship because he is the one who has created. We worship. And here's the last thing that we ought to do. We ought to worship. But if God created the universe with his powerful word, It is our duty and our delight to obey him. We must obey him. God said, let there be light, and there was light. What makes you any different than the light? If God speaks into your life and through his word, he says, let there be whatever in your life then it ought to be so. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That shows us that he is the supreme ruler. There is no one higher than him. It shows us that he alone can evaluate what is good and evil. It tells us that we should be humble and we should be hopeful, but we also should worship and obey.